I want you to hold two places in the Bible this morning. The first would be 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The other would be Galatians chapter 5 verse 22. And as you are turning there, we come to this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit called goodness. And here's my question for you this morning that may seem a little bit random. And for those of you that have the spiritual gift of randomness, you'll love it. Here's the, here's the question. If you were lost or if you were, uh, abandoned in the, in the ocean, the jungle, the wilderness, someplace like that, what would you be most afraid of? You don't have to say it out loud. I want you to think, what would you be most afraid of in the sense of something's out here and it's going to get me? We watch movies like Jaws, 1975. 1975. That probably put people in comas like Jaws. And most of us, when we go to the beach, it may not be coming through any speaker system, but we hear what? Dun, 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 dun. So, so here's what, since you came to church today, um, this is a morbid way to end it, to start out, but here we go. How many people do you think are killed every year by sharks? Think about it. Ten. From what we know. There may be a disgruntled wife who takes her husband to the beach. Honey, go swim there. Honey, sweet. You know, and then she's like, I don't know where he went, right? But ten, ten reported, uh, deaths from sharks. Wolves are reported to take out ten people a year. Lions, a hundred people a year. Elephants, a hundred. So that means statistically, if you're out in the bush and you see an elephant and a lion, I'll let you put that together. Hippopotamus, 500 people a year. I've actually had missionaries in Africa that say, don't worry about the lions, don't worry about the elephants. Worry if you're ever near the water or on the water for hippopotamus. Or the plural, hippopotami, I don't know, really, really know for sure. Crocodiles, a thousand deaths per year. This is the weird one. Snails, 10,000 deaths a year. There's a certain type of snail that is spread, and, and as I quote, by tiny parasitic snails living in rivers and snakes in subtropical and tropical regions across the globe. Breathe easy, Virginia. They burrow into human skin, moving closer to the abdomen to lay their legs, to their eggs. I will stop there. 10,000 people. I mean, can you imagine that? You end up in heaven. It's like, what happened to you? Well, I was raised in North Korea, became a Christian. I was martyred for the name of Jesus when I was 19. What happened to you? Snail got me. Like, you, you just don't want to have that story, right? That was too far. Snakes, 50,000 people a year. People. 475,000. And obviously that's not taking into account um, the wars that are around the planet right now. And the last statistic has a certain amount of bite to it. It's created no small amount of buzz. The number one killer, what we find in nature, is mosquitoes. 725,000 deaths a year. Now for most of us, if we were dropped off in the ocean, the jungle, or the wilderness, we would not be thinking mosquito. Most of us would be thinking about jaws, lion, bears, tigers, oh no. But when we come to the subject, y'all, and I'm just being as honest as I can, we're going to do something very, very unusual here this morning. 
The Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 5 that when we get saved, one of the things that God produces in our life is a quality of God himself, and it is the quality of goodness. Now, right out of the gate, if I did this morning, what we do most mornings is go immediately to the text, begin explaining the text without explaining what the Bible is not meaning by goodness, most of us automatically, mentally, would track with goodness as we understand it. Well, he's a good guy. She's a good girl. I've been a good person. You see, I, I've, I'm not that bad compared to these other people. And we would be thinking of human-centered, self-driven goodness when the Bible actually is thinking, is expressing something totally opposite. And here's the danger when the Bible mentions goodness. There, I think there are more people who never get saved, who never enter into a relationship with God, who actually go to hell when they die, not because of the sharks of atheism, not because of, I guess we could call it the wild hippopotamus of the drug lifestyle, but most people, what keeps them from God is the small insignificant mosquito, we could say, of human goodness. You see, human goodness, when we when we think that that's actually what God requires of us, we've got it all wrong. There's some people who say, well, Jeff, I've really been thinking about my relationship with God and what I need to do is start doing these things. Guess what? If God is telling you that what you need to do in order to be saved, in order to be a follower of him, is to do more good things, then it's not the God of the Bible that's telling you that. The gospel speaks of a radical type of human inability to get to God. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. So here is where most of us are in America today. We can very easily confuse what's called moralism with the gospel. Moralism is the belief of saying, you know what, life is all about being a good person. In fact, there are many people who raise their children thinking they're raising their children to be Christians, but they're simply training their children to be little moralists. And the raising goes like this. Well, you want to not cheat in school because that would be doing the wrong thing. No explanation of why it's the wrong thing. No, no connection between that and God. And to say, what we want to do, what I want you to be, son and daughter, when you grow up, is I want you to do the right thing. I want you to tell the truth. I want you to, quote, do what's right. There are Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, atheists and agnostics who raise their kids the exact same way. Like nobody raises their kids like, you know, honey, what do you want little Johnny to be? I don't know. I think it'd be great if he just becomes a mass murderer. What about you? Like nobody does that with their kids. Everybody wants their kids to behave like nobody wants to be that parent getting called into the teacher time and time again because the kid won't behave, right? But the difference becomes... From moralism to the gospel this way. Christianity is not about being a good person. We okay? Like Christianity is not about being a good person. Christianity is about realizing that we could never be good enough. Do you see the difference? And once we realize that we are not, according to God, good people, that we can never have true goodness in our heart, as God would see it, that's what opens us up to Jesus Christ. You see, with moralism, it can confuse us. 
Because we can think, well, what does God desire from me? Sometimes we have that question, right? Like, God, what do you expect? Husband, wife, dad, mom. It's like, what do they expect? Some of us think that God is expecting us simply to do better. What God calls us to do is to confess that Jesus is Lord. And in order to confess that Jesus is Lord means that we have to realize that we can never earn it ourselves. You know, the funny thing about goodness is if you talk to anybody, most people will say the world's full of problems. Do a little straw poll, world's full of problems, crazy people, jacked up people, right? But when you talk to people, very few people will say it's me. You ever thought about that? Like you just throw out, what's wrong with the world? Oh, what's wrong with the world is we've got conservatives in politics. And what's wrong with the world is we've got liberals over here. What's wrong is we've got Islam. What's wrong is we've got this and this. But guess what? Very rarely will people ever say, you know what's wrong with the world? Like G.K. Chesterton. Someone wrote him years ago and they said, what is wrong with the world? And he said, I am. Yours respectfully. G.K. Chesterton. You see, that's the gospel. The gospel is that we have to realize that goodness is not something that God expects us to start working on, but goodness is something that God shows us that we can never have apart from Him. Make sense? It's something that we can't create, we can't work towards. And you know, when we think about goodness, the tendency for us to justify ourselves, let's just think about social media for a minute. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that. Do we just put pictures up of us in the morning, half dead? Looking like we hate life and hate everybody? What pictures do we put on? I'm at the beach, and you're not. Have a great day, right? Like, we, we put pictures on social media. Man, we'll, we'll run them through filters, right? I mean, to make, to make us, you know, and you got the guys in the world that they'll buy the extra ladies if you don't, understand why guys wear certain things like what well, doesn't fit here's here's why guys will buy a shirt size that's a little bit too small put that sucker in the dryer make it real small so then when they put on that shirt it's like hulk what schwarzenegger who right and he's like my size right it's like what and and here's the thing when we put things forward when we put ourselves forward we don't put our worst foot forward we put ourselves on social media like Description, I am awesome. We don't say that, but the way that we want other people to think about us is that we're awesome. And even for, now go with me, even for those who have quote unquote given up on life or they say, man, I don't care. I don't care about anybody thinks. I'm just going to do what I want to do. Even that group, those people still find identity and fulfillment in the fact that they don't care what anybody else thinks. You tracking? And the Bible, when it speaks of goodness, this is an amazing verse, uh, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6. It hits home, and here's what it says. Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. You just kind of put an unofficial survey out there. You don't have to say it this way. But who thinks who thinks they're pretty good at life? Most people will be like, I'm pretty cool. Like, I may not be where I am, but I'm pretty much the junk. Like, I'm an awesome person. But the question, how many people do you know that you would trust with the code to your bank account? 
You see, the Bible says most people will proclaim their own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. So here's what we're going to do this morning that is different than the way that we normally do our Sunday morning teaching. Normally we take the text, the biblical passage, at the beginning and we break it down and then we apply it. I think that the concept, and I prayed about this, I think the concept of goodness, especially in the South, is so dangerous. What we're going to do is an inductive method. We're going to talk about what goodness is not and then get to the text so that we don't misunderstand the Word of God. Because if you guys are like me, you hear it all the time. Of course she's in heaven. She was a great lady. Definitely he's going to heaven because, man, he's a good guy. And it's almost like we get it from movies. It's almost like we get it from funerals. If you go to a funeral, nobody ever goes to hell. Right? Like that, you, you don't go to a funeral and somebody's like, dude was a jerk. He's burning right now. Thanks for coming. Let's go. Like nobody does that. If the person was not a believer, you, you still speak the gospel. You don't have to comment on their faith because really none of us know. Could be that God did a last second conversion. But it's almost like the default in our culture is that all dogs go to heaven, all people go to heaven, everything works out right. Do you want fries with that? Supersize this? Like it's all going to be okay. But the Bible, when it speaks about goodness, oh man, this is so important. And this is the driving thrust of this message is that Christ-centered goodness, the goodness that the Bible talks about, it begins where obligation ends. Obligation and duty lead us to certain things. It's a course of action or an act that we're morally or legally bound to. But true Jesus-driven, Christ-centered goodness begins where duty ends. That's that's the difference. So what is goodness? It's there on your outline. Um, we went full-on nerd form, gave you guys a lot of information here on this word. And the reason is because this word for goodness is only found four times in the entire New Testament. And this is what I thought was very intriguing, according to one lexicon, that this word for goodness is not found in the classical writings. The classical writings would be that of uh, primarily the Greeks. And it's not even found, for those of you scholars, in the writings of Josephus. So we could say with fair certainty that when the Bible says, especially the New Testament, it uses the term goodness, it is a qualitatively Christian term. Meaning that it's something different than simply being someone who holds the door open or someone who does their duty to the country. It actually conveys the idea of benevolence and generosity towards someone else. It's a going the second mile. Uh, biblical goodness is, um, it may be thought of as uprightness of soul. And as an action, this is from another study, reaching out to others to do good even when it is not deserved. Goodness, what the Bible teaches. Now let's stop right here. Many of us would say, Jeff, I know people who are not believers and they're actually very honest people. And did you know that you don't have to be a follower of Jesus to be an honest person? Do we get that? 
Like, please do not make the mistake of saying that Christians are the only honest people in the world. There are many atheists that if they find your wallet, will return it to you. They don't have a reason to do that. Five of y'all are tracking with me. Ultimately, there are people, Muslims and Hindus and unbelievers, who are moral, outwardly people. So what we could say this is that the world has many people who are not followers of Christ who would be characterized by this word, the word integrity. The word integrity, according to the dictionary, is the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. There's plenty of people who work construction and do finances who will do the job for you. If they have an opportunity to overcharge, there are unbelievers who will say, you know what, I can save you some money here. In other words, you don't have to be a Christian to live an outwardly moral life. Now, some of you guys are looking at me like, really? Yes. Because if you take the line of only Christians are honest, number one, you're wrong. And secondly, it's not what the scripture teaches. And here's what even lost people say about integrity. There's one person who said, real integrity is doing the right thing, knowing that nobody's going to know whether you did or not. Tom Peters, an author, said, there is no such thing as a minor lapse of integrity. Warren Buffett said, I'm in looking for people to hire. You look for three qualities, integrity, intelligence, and energy. If they don't have the first integrity, the other two will kill you. Warren Buffett. Bob Marley Silence. You've never heard Bob Marley quoted in a sermon. Here's what he says. The greatness of a man is not how much wealth he acquires, but in his integrity and his ability to affect those around him positively. Mark Twain said, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. Zig Ziglar, who happens to be a Christian, He said, the most important persuasion tool you have in your entire arsenal is integrity. Meaning if you're a trustworthy person, business goes better than if people are always having to bring in the lawyers. Tony Dungy, former NFL coach, also a follower of Jesus, says, Integrity does not come in degrees, low, medium, or high. You either have integrity or you don't. So even the lost world values honesty, right? I mean, even the lost world, even commentators with the issue of Tom Brady and the underinflated footballs, I mean, automatically, or the Barry Bonds steroid issue, like the lost world, you don't have to be a follower of Jesus to, to automatically look down on those who are dishonest. And if you're a Patriots fan, I'm sorry. But Jesus doesn't disappoint and he doesn't underinflate. president of the school that I graduated from Southwestern Seminary said something in class that I never forgot. Um, He said that he had talked to a former person, a former member of the Mossad, which is like the Israeli CIA. And he said that they teach their agents, if you cannot get someone to do something for number one, money, secondly, sex, third, retaliation or revenge. He said they were taught that that is a man or a woman of principle integrity and they cannot be bought they said that 85 percent of the world's population from their studies will do anything for money sex or revenge 
So here's just a little gut check for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. Are you honest? Like when you work your job, are you, are you honest? We're not trying to be funny here, but like when you go, when you go to McDonald's, Burger King, do you order a water and then when the people are not looking, fill it up a Sprite? Was that big conviction or what? It got really quiet. I mean, seriously, because here's the, here's the thing. If we say that we're saved and Jesus has changed our heart, we want our family to be saved and our coworkers to be saved. We want this goodness that the Bible is speaking of to be evident in our heart, that it may be a good little time for a timeout and a gut check to say, are we honest? Do we do our business in an honest way? When we find something that's not ours and we know whose it is, do we pocket it? Or do we search out the person who owns the property? Another question, do we overcharge for our work? Do we clock out early? Do we get someone else to punch in for us even though we're not there? Another question would be the jobs that we do do. Do we do those jobs as unto the Lord? I wish that we had time to do a series on work. We may end up doing that. But the Bible, especially the New Testament, contains the most powerful motivation for work. I mean, for some of us, we've worked jobs that it's only like the country song years ago. And the title is, Take This Job and Shove It. That's the only thing that fits. To where you can just be so frustrated because the workload and the bosses and the coworkers are just, well, like we've mentioned several weeks ago. The guy says, Jeff, I'm just struggling with stupid people. When it's so much that we feel like we're going to go crazy, the biblical motivation is do whatever you do, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. It means that when the request comes in and it's almost closing time, but you're going to have to stay late, God is sovereign. Amen? Right? Like God is totally, completely sovereign over everything that happens. That means that God was not playing Game Boy off to the side and like, oh, shoot, they were about to get off work. Let's see what we can do. No, it means that everything that happens, God is using that in some way to make us more like himself. You see. Do we do what we do as unto the Lord? Man, whether we're making a sandwich at a fast food place or whether we're building onto a house or whether we're teaching students or whether we're in business transactions, when that offer comes, when it's time to go to work, it is through the sovereignty of God, God saying, I've given you health, I've given you mindset, I've given you a job here today. This is how you can glorify me. Sure, it may be that you can go on an overseas mission trip one day, but here's what I've got for you today. Right here. The biblical motivation is that we don't do it for our boss. We don't do it for our coworkers. We don't even do it ultimately for our family. We do it to the Lord. Do you see how that changes things? Because if you're doing for something for someone you don't like, you're really not going to care whether they like it or not. And if they don't like it, you're like, uh-huh, and I don't like you too. But if it comes from the Lord, oh man, the change that that creates in our hearts and our minds and the patience that that produces when we've been given very difficult tasks. You see, the reason why we ask those questions is quite honestly, if we can be very, very real for a minute, if we're not men and women and students of integrity and then we begin to preach about Jesus and invite people to church, people say, it's a freaking joke. Because I see how they act on the job I see their lack of integrity. And if that's all that Jesus can produce in their life, I don't need that because I'm a good person. 
Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. He says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, this is beautiful, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Senator Jeff, how does specifically worldly integrity, common honesty differ from what the Bible speaks about goodness being the fruit of the Spirit? And this is in your notes. Follow along with me. Worldly integrity, business honesty, we could say, remains faithful to duty, whereas Christ-centered integrity goes a second mile. Let's stop there. Many times lost people will even go a second mile. But the difference with Christ-centered goodness is that we go the second mile in an order to create an opportunity to share Jesus. You see, Christ-centered goodness begins where obligation stops. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. It means going above and beyond, not so that we can feel good for ourselves, but so that we can point people to Jesus Christ. Because here's the thing. Worldly integrity sometimes causes people to go a second mile, even more than what's expected of them for their duty. But here's the danger. For people who would be considered integrity Integrity-motivated people, people who are good people, the danger can be that we can look at that and see how many dirtbags there are out there and say, well, I'm not like them. Are you tracking with me this morning? You see, the danger's not so much in the allure and the pull of atheism or the pull to join ISIS. For most people, especially in the Western world, the danger is that we compare ourselves to other people. And we say, well, Jeff, you know what? I'm, I have integrity for my work, and I even go above and beyond that. The danger is that you would see that as being salvific and something that can save when it really can't. Now, if you know somebody who's an unbeliever, And they live an outwardly moral life. They help people. We should applaud them. We should say that's good. We need more of that in society. Right? But at the same time, especially if you're talking to a person who thinks that they're good without God, you can ask the question, is there anything such as objective morality, actual goodness without God? Now let's think about this. If God doesn't exist, if God is taken out of the picture, then there's really no ultimate standard for good, is there? I mean, what's good? Well, in basketball, a good basketball player is someone who can pass, dunk, dribble, shoot. Football, you've got the rules there. For some people, they say, Jeff, if God does not exist, does that change the game for ethics? Absolutely. You see, if God doesn't exist, then we can only define good by culture or individual opinion. And go with me on this. If God does not exist, then there's no way that we can say something is absolutely objectively wrong. Meaning that things such as rape, murder, child molestation, if God does not exist, we can't actually say those things are ultimately objectively wrong. We just have to say that they're kind of out of style with what we view ethically. Why would we have to say that? Because if God is out of the picture, then like Dostoevsky said, if God 
uh, is dead, then all things are permitted. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my arguments against God collapsed also. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. If God doesn't exist, then there's ultimately no objective good. But praise God, we know that there's reasons to believe that he does exist. Reasons from history and science and philosophy, apologetics, the truth of the Bible, how it's historically verified, and ultimately the witness of the Holy Spirit. You say, Jeff, what's the ultimate reason I know that God exists? The ultimate reason is that you don't really need to give an answer of why God exists. The actual burden of proof would be on the atheist. And when people say, prove to me that God exists, I think that we should say, you know what? Why do I have to prove that he does exist? Why shouldn't you have to prove that he doesn't? I mean, why, why does the Christian, why does the theist have the burden of proof? We don't. All we have to say is that I believe that God exists because I know that he exists because he's revealed himself to me in the person of the Holy Spirit. Man, I think the most powerful evidence for the existence of God is when we look and we hear the Bible taught and we look within and we know that we've been convicted of sin and we know that God has sent his son Jesus. It's the witness of the Holy Spirit. It's something that goes beyond argument but it's not opposed to reason. You know, Charles Spurgeon made a very interesting quote. He said, morality may keep you out of hell, but it takes the blood of Jesus Christ to keep you out of hell. Morality may keep you out of jail, but it keeps the blood of Jesus Christ, takes the blood of Jesus Christ to keep you out of hell. So we know that what the Bible is not speaking of when it refers to goodness is our ability to do better things. When the Bible speaks about goodness... It is something that God creates in us once duty and obligation stops. And look at Romans chapter 15 verse 14. This is how Christ-centered goodness begins to transform the way that we live and the way that we think. Christ gives us moral clarity and a properly functioning conscience. Romans 15, 14. The Apostle Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Oh, it's the beautiful part of the gospel that when we get saved, we're filled with the Spirit, with the Spirit of Christ. And when we're filled with the Spirit, we are filled with goodness because Jesus is good. He's totally good. And that begins to change the way that we view sin. You see, before we get saved, we flirt with sin, don't we? We say, well, I just need some more Jesus in my life. I need some of this. But when we get saved, he fills us with his spirit and we hate sin. We don't want it anymore and we fight it. You see, once we get saved, the Holy Spirit begins to build goodness inside of us. And sin is no longer something that we don't like because it simply makes us feel guilty. You ever been there? To where we, man, we just, we, I don't like sinning. I don't like doing what I do because that makes me feel guilty. Why don't I like that? Because I don't like how guilt feels. Can we agree on that? I'm like, no, nobody likes guilt. But when we get saved and God begins to lead us through his spirit, his goodness comes in us. He begins to fill us. 
Sin is no longer viewed in a selfish way. We no longer view sin to say, well, I don't want to do that because that may ruin my finances. I don't want to go down that road because it may destroy my marriage. I don't want to do that because I may have the IRS come pay me a visit. But when we get saved, he gives us a properly functioning conscience to where goodness and conviction of sin is focused on God alone. So therefore, I now hate sin. Not sinners, but I hate sin because it is disrespect to the one who has loved me and saved me. You see, when we get saved, it's no longer running around trying to do good things here and there so that the massive gavel of God's judgment and wrath won't slam down on us. But we don't want to disappoint him because we don't want his hand of blessing removed. You see, it's the difference when we get saved. And secondly, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, Christ gives us change patterns of behavior and values. The Bible says, Therefore, do not become partners with them. Who is referring to those who don't know Christ? It says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is, here it is, good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. And then finally, Christ gives us follow-through ability on our deepest desires. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. 11 and 12, the Bible tells us, To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. According to this text, once we get saved... And God begins to build inside of us his own character. We can actually do what we've always wanted to do. You know, I've talked to so many people and they say, Jeff, I've had these goals. I've had these desires. I wanted to get plugged into church. But you see, it's done out of, I guess we could say, a selfish motivation. And those things last a little while and then they quickly, quickly fall away. But according to this text, he says that you may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. You see, the beautiful part of the gospel is that when we get saved, He's the one who saves us. The question of have we been saved is never an issue of have you done this, but the question has been, has Christ changed our hearts? And if He's changed our hearts, then that means that we're no longer alone. It means that every work of faith It's no longer a work of the flesh. It's no longer us having to climb some crazy big ladder up to God saying, good job. Isn't that good news? I mean, that it's a work of faith. Faith is a gift. Grace is a gift. Salvation is a gift. Oh man, and when God gives it to us and he changes our hearts, he transforms us from the inside out. We can now do what he has given us the desire to do, which is to be like him which is to love people who don't deserve it and represent him. You know, when we talk about human integrity and human goodness, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Like it's a better thing to go the speed limit in a school zone than to come 90 miles an hour through it. Right? But when it comes to the plane 
and the plane is going down, there's nothing wrong with, I don't know, a North Face backpack. They're pretty nice. But if you go for that bad boy instead of the parachute, you're in a world of hurt. And the danger that we have when we talk about goodness or good in any sort in churches all across the U.S. is so many of us, what we do automatically is we go to the backpack. Plane's going down, death is coming, one day I'm going to die, one day you're going to die. And we say, well, and we look to something that we have done. The only thing that's going to save is Jesus. It very well could be that that insignificant, that seemingly insignificant mosquito of human goodness, and I'm a good person compared to these people, could very well be the thing that leads some of you to hell. Honestly. Hey, that could be it. Doesn't take atheism. Like you're not, you're not out sacrificing cats, starting up a local satanic coven. No, nothing weird. But just, I'm working my job. I'm paying my taxes. I'm a good person. If that's your go-to, you're going for a backpack instead of the parachute. The Bible tells us, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. 